SQL Down Under is a podcast for professionals working in the SQL Server community. SQL Server is a trademark of Microsoft Corporation. Opinions expressed during the podcast are individual opinions and may not reflect the opinions of SQL Down Under or of Microsoft Corporation. Introducing Show 48 with guest Roger Doherty. Welcome. Our guest today is Roger Doherty. Roger is a Senior Program Manager or Technical Evangelist with the SQL Server Engineering Team. Welcome back to the show, Roger. Thanks, Greg. Good to be back. Indeed. So if people want to hear more about your background, uh, they can go back and hear, uh, listen to the earlier part of the last show. Uh, the reason we've got you back this time, of course, is uh, SQL Server 2012 being imminent. So tell us why we should be interested in that. Oh, um Thanks for having me back, Greg, and it's good to have the band back together for this release. Um, and uh, the SQL 2012 release itself is is a, a pretty interesting and exciting release for us. There's a lot um, happening in the in the database space as a whole. Um, so SQL Server 2012 itself, um, you know, really spans a whole variety of new capabilities for developers, for DBAs, and for IT professionals, and even all the way down to the information worker. Um, and the really interesting thing that's happening is the kind of the new choices that um, our customers are going to have in terms of how to deliver those capabilities. Um, so, and so importantly, this is, uh, well, I suppose we should say, a full release rather than a point release like the previous. Yes, book. yes, absolutely. It, it is a full release. Um, the you know, the product has, has grown in terms of its surface area over the years, so that full release means different things depending upon which component that you're talking about. Um, from the database engine perspective, this will be a new database compatibility level. Um, so if you're, you know, um, interested in supporting sort of a SQL Server on-premise and you have an application um, that targets um, SQL Server 2008 R2 or some previous release, um, you should do a bit of you know testing to make sure that it works. And um, part of that testing would involve flipping compatibility level to the new um, level 11, which is the one that corresponds with um, SQL Server 2012. Yeah, I think the thing that I noticed yesterday, uh, we were doing some work on some content uh, for courseware, and what struck me was just how much additional code is shipped in this version. The, uh, uh, I looked at the installer ISO, for example, in 2008 R2, it was about 2.5 gigabytes. Uh, this time it's 4.4 gigabytes. So. There's quite a bit of uh, new technology um, in this release that uh, we're pretty excited about. Um, like I said, that spans you know, quite a few different audiences. So I might get you to drill into the, uh, when, when you're talking about some of the options there, there seems to be a big push in terms of managed services, so perhaps we should start there. 
Yeah, so um, it's a good way of kind of talking about things. And there's um, a lot of um, uh, changes occurring internally at Microsoft and the industry as a whole in terms of how you deliver software. And, um, you know, uh, we're, we're taking that kind of self-managed platform that, um, you know, most Microsoft shops have grown up on, and we're projecting it into a couple of different delivery platforms. Um, and, and, and those would include what we would call infrastructure as a service, which is IaaS. Um, the whole idea there is to abstract yourself from kind of like the hardware and the networking layers. Um, you're still dealing with computers, but you don't have to necessarily go out and buy a SAN or buy a new server every time you want to roll out a new database server. So um, we're doing a lot of testing with SQL Server 2012 to make sure that it runs really well in a virtualized kind of configuration whether that's hosted on-premise in your own kind of private cloud configuration or whether it's hosted in somebody else's data center like, you know, Windows Azure or Amazon or Rackspace or you name it, right? Yeah. Um, so, so that's a big push right there. Yeah, so um, I noticed that there seems to be a blend uh, in the diagrams from sort of a platform at one end, which is self-managed, yep. through... Uh, increasing amounts till you get to the point of software as a service Absolutely. at the other end. So, so that whole idea of managed services is pushing itself up the stack, right? So what we just talked about with infrastructure as a service is really kind of abstracting the hardware out of the equation, right? When yep. you get into platform as a service, you're abstracting all of your kind of operating system, database, and middleware, and runtime technologies out, and you're really just purely dealing with the service at that point. So the way that we're delivering that is with SQL Azure um, uh, on, on Windows Azure. So you can just go up to Windows Azure. You can say, hey, create me a new logical server. You know, 30 seconds later, you have an endpoint um, that's basically a fully functional um, SQL-based database that you can use to, you know, build applications. Yeah, I find actually the uh, newest user interface on on that seems uh, quite good as well. The uh, we've been doing a little bit of work with the SQL Azure lately, and uh, it's interesting. The uh, the the one comment that came back from a number of the guys was that it was actually fun. Yeah, it, it is a very interesting new way of thinking about building applications. And actually, the team that I'm on now has had a big hand in um, helping design the user experience around that that new SQL Azure management portal that you just described. Um, so, you know, the key is that we'll, we'll support all of the existing old school stuff that you would, you know, expect us to, like Management Studio and even SQL CMD if you've got the right, you know, um, ports open to your, to your mm. SQL Azure database. But we also want to make it easy for you to just, with no tools at all, go up there and get some work done, create a new database, populate some data, so um, we're trying to build out a really excellent web web experience for that as well. So where are we at in terms of compatibility now between uh, the SQL Azure and the on-premises? It's a bit of a journey. Um, I think you know there's still some rough edges there. Um, the, uh, the the goal, you know, kind of moving forward is complete parity. Um, but uh, you know, given that this is a relatively new area, um, I think you'll see some some kind of continuing differences between them as we um, as we move forward. But the good news here in terms of the differences in the way that SQL Server behaves from SQL Azure is that the engineering teams have merged. They are all checking ah. into the same source code base. So, for example, 
if you're using Transact SQL and you use, say, um, you know, a union operator or something in your Transact SQL, it's the exact same code running on both SQL Server and SQL Azure to, to process that. You're not dealing with, you know, two different flavors of SQL Server, right? Yeah, and what was interesting too, actually, porting across a number of scripts and things to uh, get them to run, I was su pleasantly surprised by the number of objects that are now supported uh, compared to previous versions. Yes, yeah, we're, 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 we're making some progress there. I think the kind of first hello world thing that most SQL Server geeks did was try to just push AdventureWorks up there, right? And uh, most of them failed miserably in early releases of SQL Azure simply because we didn't have support for all the little specialized object types in SQL like spatial and things like that. But um, yep. as you mentioned, as we move forward, uh, in a, almost on a quarterly basis, we're rolling out new functionality in the cloud. And as a matter of fact, a lot of these SQL Server 2012 improvements that we'll talk about on the call today are already live in SQL Azure. Yeah. The uh, Now, in terms of, I noted there was a, a data platform requirements slide in your materials yep. where you sort of broke out the different areas of investment. Yes. And so uh, perhaps we could look at a few of those. Yeah, cool. So we... Um, uh, I like to kind of break up the release into four buckets. Um, the first one is kind of like the crown jewel of SQL Server, and that's really the database engine or, or what I would call database services. So we'll have a new release of the database engine um, with a bunch of important innovations there. And as I already mentioned, you know, that database engine technology is the same code now running across uh, SQL Server 2012 and SQL Azure. Um, you know, it, different features and capabilities will be turned on depending upon where it's running, but it's the same code underneath. Um, and you know, a lot of the really interesting and important new improvements in the database engine would be things like um, our new column store index. So yep. that technology um, is really about kind of flipping the old uh, beach side. We go through and we index on a column basis, compress it all down into blobs um, that can be, you know, read and paged into memory very rapidly. And what you get are some insanely good query performance for very large data warehousing kind of queries, as opposed yeah. to what you could get on the kind of previous B-tree indexing technology. And that's shared technology across the SQL Server Engine team and the team that's responsible for PowerPivot. Yeah, which again, in the case of PowerPivot, yeah, we've seen some quite startling levels of uh, compression in the data. And even though they seem to be doing sort of a brute force search because they seem to be able to get so much of the data in memory and it's so compressed, the, the performance ends up being really quite something. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's an exciting improvement and uh, something I think is long overdue quite frankly, for you know, mm. people have been buying, um, you know, uh, specialized database server platforms to do this kind of work in the past. And, you know, once again, we're going to provide this in the box, you know, at a much uh, lower entry point for, uh, for folks that want to take advantage of that technology. Um, uh, other things in the database engine, I was intrigued with some of the changes around full text and semantic search and so on. And uh, the... One of the air, uh, one of the in, uh, the events that we uh, attended uh, middle of last year, where they covered off all the things happening in Denali. Uh, I thought the couple of hours that Michael Reese was presenting on 
the sort of beyond relational and uh, full text and so on was uh, some of the best material of the whole week, actually. Yeah, I, I'm equally excited about those capabilities. I think what you're seeing is some of the early investments that we made in technology like FileStream really start to come into their own and start enabling um, some pretty exciting new capabilities. So, um, you know, I like to describe that as, you know, SQL Server branching out and, and kind of handling different types of storage, right? So yeah. we're all familiar with the, you know, standard relational um, table storage that is really good at, you know, strings and numbers, uh, but maybe not so good at, you know, large binary objects like images and documents and things of that nature. Yeah, I find what what fascinates me there is that the the thing I love with full text already is that it lets you sort of build interfaces that are much more like what humans want rather than what IT people want. I, I find it, IT folk love everything sort of nice and neat and precise, but users just love stuff that's all soft and fuzzy. Yes, and, yeah, uh, bring it all together, right? They don't really care yeah. where it's stored. They just want to get access to their information. They don't want to go peck through five different, you know, um, geeky systems to get it get to get at their data, right? Yeah, what what I like, uh, I think the best indication I've seen of that in recent years, if I look at the mapping programs, the Google Maps, the Bing Maps, things like that, I, I think if people think back to when they were first introduced, the user interface had lots of little separate little boxes where you had to go street number this and a suburb this and whatever and, and but all of those have now evolved to a single text box that says what are you looking for yep exactly and i think you can and be yet searching we don't, don't kind build. of geolo geolocated data or just yeah exactly and you get all yeah, kinds we, of rich information back documents yeah um, i can just type tower and it goes straight to it yep. and uh and, and that's the thing is that i find that we still build business applications like the old versions of those where we have all these little boxes and and I think full text lets you build much, much more sophisticated interfaces, and and it understands language. That's the important thing. So drive and drove and driving that are all to a human the same concept. Uh, it, it lets you deal with that. T totally agree. I mean, in in a certain regard, what you're describing is the consumerization of 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 you know kind of line of business software. People have better tools at home for their consumer lives than they do at work, right? Exactly. Um, yes. So, what are we doing in the platform to enable those kinds of experiences? And this category of improvements that you're describing are are really fundamental to that, right? Yeah. That new file stream capability, which is really about you know going out and and doing a better job of managing other types of data than just relational data. And what we've done is we've layered on top of that another improvement called file table. And what a file table is, is think of it as um, a two-headed table. On one head, you can talk to it using Transact SQL and query it and pull documents out of it, right? On the other head, you can talk to it using any SMB application, like Windows Explorer, Word, Excel, anything that talks SMB, right? Um, yeah. And they're both writing to the and reading from the same location, but it's all managed by SQL Server from a, uh, an administrative perspective and from a security perspective, right? So this removes the one fundamental roadblock that prevented people from using technology like FileStream, which is how the heck do I actually get my content into SQL Server, right? 
Yeah. It's now just a drag and drop copy operation. It's as easy as that to move content in and out of you know a SQL Server using this new file table construct. I notice also that one of the restrictions before we had was we couldn't use file stream with mirroring and so on. Yes. Uh, but now with the high availability options available in this version, those sort of restrictions yep, that's right. disappear so, as I mean, well. We took the training wheels off. We decided that this 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 technology for managing you know new rich types of data is important enough to make it highly available. And so our new always on uh, high availability and disaster recovery technology fully supports. Um, you know, file stream data as part of your high availability and disaster recovery configuration. Yeah, actually, before we talk about um, always on, which I think probably should be next. Yep. The uh, but there's also the semantic search layer that's been added as well. Yeah. Well, you had mentioned um, full text indexing, and and that is a technology that is well known and loved by web developers, but not so much by people who build OLTP applications or data warehousing applications. So. It might be worth a quick introduction to what full text search is. Full text search lets you do kind of like inherently non-relational searches against content. And what is content? Content could be something as small as uh, some memo field that you've typed data into uh, in an NVAR char 4000 field. It could be some XML documents that you've stored in an XML uh, column. Uh, or it could be Word and Excel documents that you stored in a file table. Any of those qualify as content, right? And you can create full text indexes to kind of, you know, aggregate um, the textual information in that content and enable very powerful search scenarios off over top of it. So the typical example, like you were mentioning before, Greg, is like I'm looking at a screen for a customer. And I've got my data broken out into different columns, customer name, customer address, you know, uh, uh, province, whatever, right? Um, you know, traditionally, we would create indexes on, you know, individual columns and do um, searches. But if I'm just looking for a word, regardless of which column it shows up in, that's a pretty crazy SQL query, but something that's extremely easy to do with a full text index, right? Yeah. Um, so I could just say, hey, look for this word like I'm if I'm a customer service app and I'm looking for a dissatisfied customer, um, you know, I could search for the word unhappy and have it show up whichever column it happens to, you know, be stored in um, if mm. I've got full text indexing technology there, right? So, yeah. so that technology is growing up in SQL Server 2012 and it's getting more robust and supporting high availability and disaster recovery. It gets new search options, but the really exciting thing is the one that you mentioned, which is the semantic search capability. And I think... So this is a, a nice new layer over the top that's more targeting getting meaning out of, out of the text. Exactly, and the way I like to describe it is, um, is using the concept of tag clouds, right? So. Yep. Anybody who's familiar with writing a blog, you know, you'll you'll go in, you'll write a blog post, and you'll create a set of tags that describe the content that's in your blog post. Well, let's say, Greg, that you and I are contributing to the same blog. What's to guarantee that you and I will use the same taxonomy for the tags we use to describe the blog posts, right? Yeah, almost zero. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So what you wind up with is this very inconsistent, you know, semi-usable, uh, kind of taxonomy for searching things. 
Well, semantic search solves that problem. It creates a statistical algorithm that is language aware that will go out there and as part of your full text index will do term extraction. And it will, it understands the structure of the language for the underlying content and will find out kind of what that content is talking about. And it will create a set of terms and, and rank those terms based upon how relevant they are for the underlying content. So using that, you can sort of automatically create a tag cloud over your, your, your content as an aggregate, over individual pieces of content, and you can do very powerful searches like find me things that are like this document that I'm looking at now. And if you think about yeah. the implications of that for, for content management systems in like the insurance industry, the legal industry, the applications are, are huge. Yeah. And you also touched on always on before, so we should mention that. Yep. So um, we've had this, um, uh, you know, as we've grown, we've continued to add mission-critical capabilities to SQL Server for, um, you know, allowing you to make your application highly available and providing disaster recovery options. And in SQL Server 2012, we've got a major rationalization and series of improvements around that technology called Always On um, that really makes it possible for you um, to implement a high availability and disaster recovery solution um, that kind of combines what I would call database redundancy, which we used to call mirroring, um, yep. is this, it, into this new um, set of capabilities called availability groups. So. Mm. The basic idea behind this is, let's say I'm an ERP application, and I've got in my ERP application four databases that have to be online in order for the application itself to be functional, right? All I do and always on is add all four of those databases to my availability group, and then I can create replicas of those things on up to four different nodes. Um, yeah, I think that's a, a really key change there too. Is the the idea that previously with mirroring we had one replica and it was either synchronous or asynchronous. Now we have lots of choices. Right. So for each replica, you can define how it's synchronized. Synchronous is obviously requires more bandwidth, but there's zero possibility of data loss there. Async requires less bandwidth, but you might lose a little data on an async scenario, and if there's a failover event, right? Yeah, so now we can have up to four replicas and uh, two of them synchronous yep. uh, if, we, if we want and uh, combinations of sync and async. So it means I can have local high availability but long-distance uh, disaster recovery. Yep, and I can do all that on commodity hardware as well with availability groups, which is also you know very exciting stuff. So you could think of availability groups as the new kind of mirroring on steroids, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think the other notable thing there was the the concept of a listener, where we can now sort of define a specific name for client applications and things to connect to uh, to simplify the redirection off uh, when things do fail over. Yeah, that's absolutely critical. I mean, in the past with mirroring, we had this whole kind of special node that we called the witness. That all goes away. We now use built-in capabilities of Windows Server called Windows Server Failover Clustering to create a durable kind of listener that you would use to connect your applications to. So when the applications connect to the listener, um, the listener then routes them to wherever the primary is, right? So this really yeah. uh, completely transparent to the application tier. 
The final thing that you had in your database services area was the SQL Azure Data Sync. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we have um, a set of technologies for you know replicating and synchronizing data. Right now, we have kind of two flavors of, of that. One for on the on-premise world, which is SQL Server replication. That really isn't changing much in the Denali wave. And then we have yeah. something for the cloud world, um, which is called SQL Azure Data Sync. SQL Azure Data Sync is really for kind of offline sync scenarios for um, um, you know scheduled synchronization. So I can have a data set. I, I need a master copy of it up in SQL Azure. I can then create kind of uh, uh, copies of that on other SQL Azure uh, nodes, even in different data centers or on premise. So I could have my kind of hub and spoke topology where I've got my master data stored up in SQL Azure, say, in the South Central U.S. data center. I could have a, a node out in Southeast Asia running in SQL Azure there, and I could have a node in my on-premise environment running on SQL Server in my data center in Chicago, right? Um, yeah. Create that whole topology, specify um, kind of who wins if a, con- if a conflict is detected, and specify a schedule on which you want to sync and um, behind the scenes, then SQL Azure Data Sync will make it happen. Yeah. As well as community resources such as this podcast, SQL Down Under offer mentoring services and both private and public training options. If you need to get your project back on track or if you need to get it off to a good start, why not give us a call? We have also recently introduced a series of online courses available in both Asia-Pacific and US-UK time zones. In particular, the first course that's offered in this series is Query Performance Tuning. You'll find details at www.sqldownunder.com. And so, look, with, I suppose, while on the topic of uh, moving data around, that then leads into there's a data integration services pillar. Yes. And one of the things that I'm most excited about in this version is actually integration services. The uh, if I look at SQL Server 2008 R2, I said to people, one of the things I most loved about that version, I, I always love the little things that won't make it onto a brochure. I, I love where lots and lots and lots of little improvements occurred. And I think reporting services, that happened in 2008 R2. Yes. But this time, integration services. Yeah, integration services is going through a major overhaul, but I don't want to scare anybody. We're not going to break your SSIS packages like we did when we moved from DTS to SSIS, so don't don't worry about that. We'll have a, a very uh, uh, functional compatibility mode that you can run your existing SSIS packages in unchanged on SQL Server 2012, so that's a big deal. But if you want to leverage some of the new functionality, we have a great new um, design experience, um, you know, things that should have been there a long time ago, like undo and redo and the package <laughs> yes. design experience are there. Um, just uh, That's a classic example of something that you don't usually see on the brochures. Yeah, you're not going to really make a big deal <laughs> about having undo, redo support, right? <laughs> but when you, whenever you show somebody, uh, show that in a room of people, that is that is one of the woohoo moments. That's an applause <laughs> uh, getter for integration services for sure. And I think the other big deal with integration services is we now have a proper server administration model for it. So we have this weird 
kind of world with DT exec where you had this kind of binary executable that you would use to run your packages and people would inadvertently fire off a package, think it was running on the server, but in actuality it's actually running on their laptop, right? Yeah. Um, which could be a bad thing. So you now actually have a whole new kind of uh, set of administration tools and catalogs right within SQL Server Management Studio where you can install your packages, execute them, um, monitor them, configure them, troubleshoot them, um, and it's all tied together very, very nicely. Um, so big investments in the server kind of tooling around integration services. Yeah, I thought the the two most notable things there, I think, uh, is the idea that you now deploy packages, uh, oh, sorry, pr uh, projects rather than just packages, and you can have sort of connections and parameters and things at the package at the project level, right. which is really sweet. But the the one that I'm most impressed about is the idea that that because that now all lives in a database. Uh, a, it is instance aware, which it wasn't before, and the other thing is we can now execute packages, as you said, but using T-SQL. So I can execute T-SQL commands to fire up and run packages. Yeah, I can write a stored procedure that runs SSIS packages, no problem. Yes. Yep. And master data services in this release, uh, where are we at with that? Um, the, you know, the, the, the technology for master data services showed up in SQL Server 2008 R2. That was kind of acquired technology. So we, we first got it into the box in that wave, and you know, it was just a big effort just to make that happen. I think in the SQL Server 2012 release, you'll start to see some new functionality and fit and finish show up with master data services. Um, that people really want to see. So uh, much better integration with Excel um, yep. in terms of managing the, um, the, uh, the, the various repositories that are involved in setting up a master data management solution. Um, yeah, I, I think if I was editing a whole lot of products, Excel is the place to be doing that rather than in Windows inside MDS. Yeah, most definitely. Uh, we, we don't want to be in the business of creating the user interface for that, and most people understand Excel, so you know that's a good way to go. And I think you know for anybody that's looking to wire together disparate information systems that share common data sets, Master Data Services is a good set of frameworks and tools to help you implement that. Yeah, and I think the one that intrigues a lot of people in this section now is the introduction of data quality services. Yeah, this is a good one. So I think most uh, SSIS developers like myself think they're capable. Just pulled my headset out. Sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> most, I got a little excited on this end, Greg. Um, <laughs> most SSIS developers think they're capable of writing the ultimately flexible SSIS package that will handle any kind of dirty data. And the reality is, is that's basically impossible, particularly when you're getting data in from places like the Internet or from, you know, new customers that you're onboarding. You really just can't ever predict, you know, how clean their data is going to be and whether or not it can be introduced into your system. The people that really understand this are the domain experts for that data, and they have different titles in companies. Some of them are called data analysts. Some of them are called business analysts. Some are called auditors, right? Um, and we really don't have tooling for those people, those domain experts of data. And that's what Data Quality Services is designed. It's, it's tooling for those people. It helps them kind of iteratively build a knowledge base for scrubbing 
dirty data and getting it into a form where it can be introduced into the system. Once that knowledge base is built out, um, then developers for, for tools like integration services can leverage it as part of operational kind of data cleansing and scrubbing initiatives. Yeah. Now, the other one in that category is Stream Insight, and I think a lot of people surprised when that appeared in the product in 2008 R2. And so, changes in this version? Yeah, I, I, I'm a big Stream Insight advocate. Um, you know, when you think of that pillar of data integration services, you're really looking at different workloads, right? Integration, um, integration services is about ETL workloads, extract, transform, load, right? Master data services is about uh, MDM workloads, master data management. Um, data quality services is a set of tooling for, you know, people who need to scrub, you know, dirty data, but end users, right? Stream Insight mm -hmm. is for a whole new workload that most, you know, um, people uh, in the SQL Server space may, might be unfamiliar with called CEP or Complex Event Processing. And essentially CEP is a scenario where you have extremely high f volumes of event stream data flying at you at a very high rate, and you need to reason over top of that in real time. You don't have time to persist it to a database uh, transform it into a data warehouse, build a cube, and run a report, right? By the time all that's yeah. happened, the, the, the thing late. that you needed <laughs> yeah. to be alerted on may have been long in the past, right? Yeah. So, so look, that, that's a, a great integration story. Yep. Then the next pillar you had listed was analytical services. Now, this one in the community seems to have raised a lot of discussion. Uh, as soon as there was a discussion around analysis services, now having a new option around uh, the models, mm -hmm. there's a lot lot of concern about what does that mean for the previous investments and things. Well, we, um, we, we it's true. We have a lot of new functionality for that kind of number crunching capability that we have in analysis services. Um, most people are probably aware that the team that invented Power Pivot came out of the analysis services team and is still part of the analysis services team. Um, and so what we're trying to do here is we're trying to bring those worlds together. Um, yeah. We have this kind of highly productive, kind of um, very agile, um, uh, kind of data, data warehousing sandbox thing that we've done with PowerPivot, and we have this highly structured, extremely flexible, and highly complex thing that we've done with analysis services and MDX, right? Yeah. And over time, we'd like to kind of minimize the differences between those things and, and, and move the whole, the whole thing forward, right? Yeah. But the important message anyway is analysis services can support the new ta uh, the tabular models that are similar to the Power Pivot yep. experience. Yep. And also, uh, I think they were listed now are called multidimensional and data mining models. Yes. So um, the, the, the big news there is that you, you now – have an option when you install analysis services to run in a couple of different modes. You can run it in the multi-dimensional slash data mining mode, which is the you know existing um, MDX, uh, um, uh, UDM, uh, OLAP kind of scenario that we've been building up for the past you know 10 plus years, right? Um, yep. And that'll work great, and you know we'll continue to move that forward. You can also install it in uh, what's called tabular mode, 
And when you install it in tabular mode, what you can do is basically publish power pivot models up to your analysis services instance. Yeah. Um, previously, you could only publish power pivot models up to a power pivot server running in SharePoint, right? So this gives you a new potential destination to publish your power pivot models. Why is that interesting to analysis services people? Why it's interesting is that once you do that, once you publish it um, to analysis services, um, you can now get access to some of that good, you know, in-memory compression technology um, that was formerly only available if you were running in a SharePoint world, right? Yeah. Number two, you can get at that data using the traditional kind of MDX uh, interfaces that um, most cube browsers and, and, and OLAP applications were built to leverage. So that, that new tabular model supports dimensions. It supports hierarchies. It supports KPIs. Um, and it has um, the ability to, to service MDX queries. So it's a great bridge between this new kind of power pivot uh, world and, and the, uh, the existing kind of very high-end um, analysis services OLAP mode. Yeah, and the DAX language, instead of just being measures and calculated columns, now becomes a fully-fledged query language yes. for running against it as well. Yes, so not only are we kind of bridging back MDX developers to be able to talk to, to these, you know, new tabular models, but at the same time, we're, we're making, you know, the power pivot world um, more capable and more functional with, with a new version of DAX, just as you described. So we'll, there'll be a new power pivot client for Excel. There'll be a new power pivot server for SharePoint. And, and those would be the two environments that you would, you know, use that new DAX, those new DAX capabilities that you just mentioned. Yeah, I think one of the powerful aspects now is that we have a choice between developing um, models inside PowerPivot and Excel like we had before, but we also have the designer now as a much richer experience inside Visual Studio in as part of SQL Server data tools. And that really gets, gets at the heart of, of what we're trying to accomplish here. We have this proliferation of kind of like BI layers or BI models. We had report models. We had the UDM. Um, and, you know, you sort of had to create multiple metadata layers depending upon the user experience that you wanted to drive. We'd like to get to a world where there's one metadata layer. It's this thing called the BI semantic model that services, you know, all of your user experiences for scorecards and dashboards, for, you know, Excel type users, for operational reporting, for all of them, right? Um, and, yeah. and the design experience for that is indeed um, something that will be delivered in, in two ways, through Excel for the basic user who just wants to get up and running right now, and then we'll have an, a, a, more, a richer design experience um, in Visual Studio as well for a more professional uh, developer. A few nice things I noticed in Power Pivot uh, or in the tabular model this time around. First up, I suppose support for hierarchies seemed to be uh, an aspect well received, plus also the ability to have multiple relationships, even though only one's active, yep. but between tables. And calculated measures, you know. These, yes. are, these are all concepts that are well known and well understood by the analysis services community. And when they first looked at Power Pivot and those things weren't there, they were very confused, right? Yeah. Um, so having them there now is really kind of the, the bridge that we needed to get those existing MDX and OLAP developers more comfortable with this, 
you know, BI semantic model, tabular yeah. model technologies. And in, I suppose when you're talking about getting corporate folk uh, interested as well, the, there's a nice security layer, uh, and there's also the uh, introduction of things like perspectives even as well. Yes, indeed. So before, you know, with Power Pivot, there was really, you know, if, if you had access to the Power Pivot workbook, you had access to everything in it, right? And now with, you know, role-based security and perspective support, you can now kind of constrain people to just sections of your model based upon who they are. Yeah. And so the final pillar is reporting services areas. And so first up, we now have another option with SQL Azure reporting. Yeah. So the good news there is, you know, reporting services has always from its, you know, infancy been delivered as a web service, right? And, you know, in this kind of new world where you can choose where to deliver your service, it should be relatively easy to spin up a web service. And that's exactly what we did. We took the core reporting services capabilities and delivered that as a service on Windows Azure. Um, so now what you can do is go up, if you have a Windows Azure subscription, you can go up, provision a new report server, and in a couple of, you know, less than a minute, have an endpoint that you can publish reports to and render them. Yeah. And I suppose the, the additional nice thing there is it minimizes a whole lot of the traffic if your data happens to be in SQL Azure as well. Exactly. So this is the ideal scenario if you're a Windows Azure developer and you need to do some operational reporting and you want to keep everything inside, you know, the Windows Azure data center so you're not getting charged a lot of, you know, data egress for, for just reporting. Yeah. Anything around traditional reporting services at all? I suppose the we would have the new designer experience inside SQL Server Data Tools. Yeah, so... Um, uh, th that's an interesting one that you just mentioned there. Um, so we, we do have this new um, term that we're using called SQL Server Data Tools. Um, and the idea there is that all the designers and project systems used to assemble um, a SQL Server application ideally should, should be available um, to the developer, um, you know, either as a standalone capability or integrated with Visual Studio, right? Um, so SQL Server 2012 is the first um, release of this, and, and we're kind of we're, we're kind of um, halfway there. Okay, so we'll have yeah. a free uh, version of SQL Server Data Tools that only has the data, the new database designer projects and capabilities available um, through the web platform installer. So you'll be able to go up, install that SQL Server Data Tools, and start building SQL Server database applications without even having SQL Server on your box, which is pretty cool, yep. right? Now, if you need to do more sophisticated things like include BI functionality with your application, you're actually going to need to install SQL Server 2012 to get those project systems and designers, right? Yeah. Um, but the good news is, is that once you do that, everything's all running in the same place. Um, if you don't have Visual Studio on your machine, we install a Visual Studio shell, and then we call that SQL Server Data Tools, and both the database and BI designers are all running in that. If you have Visual Studio 2010 on your machine, we just show up as you know project systems and designers as part of your core Visual Studio environment. Mm. And the final jewel in the crown in this lot is the PowerView. Yeah. So when you look at reporting services, you know pretty much the same for the 2012 release. The only new 
um, functionality and reporting services is some nice end-user alerting capabilities that we're delivering when you're running reporting services in SharePoint integrated mode. Um, for those shops that do use reporting services in SharePoint integrated mode, we've improved the administration, installation, and configuration management of that because we're running that as a shared service now as opposed to an external process running as an instance of reporting services. So it's much more SharePointy, y um, and your SharePoint administrator should be more comfortable with it. If you install in that mode, you now have this new data alert capability, which allows you to go your own alerts, and instead of having to manually open and read every report, you basically set up alerts to inform you when something is worth looking at, right? Um, and then on top of reporting services, um, we used to have this technology called re Report Builder. That will, we've announced that we intend to... And still to, do. <laughs> yeah. We, 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 we still have it. Um, that was a bit of a Freudian slip there. Um, <laughs> we're, we're, uh, we're, we're announcing the official deprecation of uh, report models um, in, uh, in SQL Server 2012. Um, report models were supposed to be um, the reporting tool for people that didn't know SQL. Um, yep. And we had limited success with that. So we yeah, went back to the drawing board. We I found that they were required for Report Builder 1. Yes. But ever since Report Builder 1, we've had the ability to work in Report Builder 2 and 3 without those. Yes. And I find most people have chosen to work without those. Yeah, and, 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 and in essence, turning Report Builder into the report design tool for people who don't want to install Visual Studio. Yeah. Yeah. So really, that's how I think of Report Builder is it's just a different way of designing reports with a, with a slightly different user interface, a little bit more end-user friendly than you would have if you were running in Visual Studio. But bottom line is you still know, need to know SQL if you're not going to use report models, right? Yeah, I, I think that's one of the things is that over the last few versions, I've had this feeling that Report Builder was moving upwards in terms of the... Uh, capability that someone needed to use it actually the I think even the fact that you open it up in 2008 R2 and it used words like data set yes. and so on that that's a lot more you, you've immediately disqualified <laughs> you know 90% of the non-technical end users out there when you use a term yeah. like data set right <laughs> so so the nice thing now is PowerView takes a lot of that away there you go uh, the so so that's that's a perfect segue here right um, you know in the old world or the, 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 the existing kind of framework for reporting services, you have a developer or a, a, a reporting services savvy person go lay out a report and publish that report, and then people can go and render that report, right? And there's this you know, cycle that happens around those activities. With PowerView, what happened is the reporting services team and the analysis services team got together they looked at the cool things that Power Pivot was doing for Excel users, and they said, how can we extend an experience like that for self-service reporting? And so um, the good news is that both Power Pivot and PowerView run off the same underlying infrastructure, um, which is that new BI semantic model that we were talking about. And what PowerView gives you is a very rich interactive data exploration experience where users just pick things up, drop them on a canvas and play until they get kind of where they want to be um, for the, the reporting action that they wanted to perform. Yeah, I think one of the things that I quite like about this as well is that 
even though it's a very, very end-user tool, it actually has quite a bit of a designer, a developer surface in that you can get in and make de uh, decisions about when someone clicks on something, just what will appear yes. by default so, so, and so, so on. So the best PowerView experience is one that is powered by a BI semantic model that was thoughtfully laid out by a developer, right? Yes. Um, so where all the access paths to the data are well-defined, where you've turned off things that are noise um, and focused on just the things that users will actually be interested in. Um, if you do that work up front, you're going to have a much more productive experience by your end users. So that really is the developer story for PowerView is go off, build an excellent BI semantic model, um, and then you know, publish that so that your users can go and, and, and party on it with PowerView. Yeah. Well, Roger, look, there's so much to look forward to in SQL Server 2012. The, I'm sure the question everybody would want me to ask is when. Yeah, so the, um, the uh, official um, you know, public information that we've released is that it will ship sometime during the first half of 2012, so just mm -hmm. around the corner. Yeah, that's, that's outstanding. Listen, and so where will people see more things or uh, where will they see you or any of these things in the upcoming months? So you'll see quite a bit of activity around um, the SQL Server 2012 uh, launch wave. If you just check out www.microsoft.com slash SQL, that's a good place to start. There yep. you can download the latest pre-release bits of SQL Server 2012 and do a bit of testing. Um, you can also Bing um, the SQL Server 2012 Developer Training Kit. Um, that will yes. take you to a nice, uh, thin installer that um, will publish a lot of the developer-oriented training content that folks like Greg and myself are developing to get people up to speed on this new release. Outstanding. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time today, Roger. We're looking forward to it. Thanks a lot, Greg. We'll see you soon.